we're continu continuing, there it is on the screen, the, the series called The Peaks, uh, looking at some of the, the big passages and, and events. Um, you know, for now through the Old Testament, we will be going through the whole Bible, so it's kind of a, a massive Bible overview. And this week we're, we're going to be talking about David, uh, but in another sense we're actually talking about the same thing that we've been talking about all the other weeks. Uh, throughout the Old Testament, God is revealing himself to different people and, and making promises about what he will do in the future. And so all of these events, all of these big passages point towards their fulfillment in Jesus. And so even though we're, we are going to talk about David and passages involving David, um, and I mean, there, there's a lot more we could talk about if we were to talk about the life of David. Uh, we could talk about his biography, his, his accomplishments, we could read through his Psalms, his rise to power, you know, the stories of David and Goliath, things like that, uh, his failures, his forgiveness. Uh, but today we're actually looking at something that God did, and this is establishing uh, a covenant, a kingdom beginning with David and making a covenant with him known as the Davidic covenant. Um, so let, let's just pray and then we'll dive into a, our passage for today. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you do reveal yourself to us through your word. We thank you that you are a God that makes promises to your people and that you keep them and you fulfill them. I just pray that you would grant us understanding so that we can see uh, just even more of just how good you are uh, through all that you've done for us in Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're looking at a very famous Old Testament passage. Uh, when you think of uh, think of God's covenant with David, we think of, of 2 Samuel 7, where God establishes a covenant with David. And actually, yeah, open up your Bibles and, and check out the first few verses there, where we see David as the main character, for, for starters, and he has some bold plans to build a house for God. Okay, so from verse 1, now, now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies, uh, surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. So that doesn't sound that remarkable, for starters, that, you know, David lived in his house and, and that they weren't at war. But that, that, that sounds pretty normal to us, but when you look at the, the early history of Israel, the fact that there was stability, that he was living in a house and that they weren't at war, that's pretty weird <laughs> for them. Basically, you know, they'd spent 40 years wandering through the wilderness, you know, without, uh, they, they were all dwelling in tents, not just the tabernacle, not just God, they were all wandering aim, aimlessly through the wilderness. Then they enter the promised land, you think, oh good, they've entered the promised land, it's all smooth sailing from here, right? And instead we see generations of conflict with the, the people that they didn't drive out of the land within their own nation, and then you've got other nations, surrounding nations coming and being at war with them, so... Uh, when the passage starts that God had given David rest from all his enemies, that's a really strange time in, in history. So there was this period of stability, and so David wants to build a permanent temple for God. Uh, so exactly the same function as the tabernacle, where they would offer sacrifices, they would enter the presence of God, um, but just uh, not a portable tent, a, a permanent structure. But look at God's response, so from verse 4 onwards. It says, but that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? 
I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? So it's a no, basically, to, to David. Um, but but why, why did God say no? Why did he respond like that? Like, what, was it actually a problem that David suggested it? Was it a, you know, a, a sinful offer? I mean, it can't have been too much of a problem that he would say, you know, that he would offer to build a temple because we know later on God did have one of his kings in Solomon build a temple. So it wasn't intrinsically bad. It wasn't an immoral idea by David, but the issue was simply that God didn't command it. God is the one who's working out his plan in his timing, not David. And so that's the interesting thing about these covenants, that, that God is the instigator. God is the one who's at work. God is the one who makes the promises. God is the one who fulfills them. And, and we've already seen that already, you know, that God's covenant with Abraham, <laughs> he puts Abraham to sleep and then establishes the covenant because God's the one establishing it. And then, you know, Moses is leading the people of Israel, but you know, he didn't go and seek God. He, God went and appeared to Moses, and then God went and appeared again in Mount Sinai and gave them the law. And then again with David, it's, it's God coming to David to establish the covenant. He won't let anyone else take his glory. He won't let anyone else make the plans. And, and even though there, there are great heroes of the faith, like he, Hebrews 11 refers to these people as, as great heroes of the faith, they're our example. And yet it, it would be really easy for a series like this as we go through the Old Testament to, to make it all about these great figures. Well, you know, wasn't Abraham amazing? Wasn't Moses amazing? Oh, be, be more like David kind of uh, approach to a series like this. And yet in all these stories, if, if we make that the main point, then we have missed the point, which is the, the main character, the hero of this story is God. God is the one using these people. And he, di he didn't pick out David because he was mighty and noble, and he didn't pick out Moses or Abraham because they were just so faithful or so moral or so godly. God is the hero of this story. then we can, we can probably do the same thing in our own lives if, if you think about what does it mean to be a faithful Christian. We, we often think in terms of, well, here's what I'm going to do for God. Right? Here's my list of things that I need to do to, to serve God and please God and be a great hero of the faith. And, and there's, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with, with that as far as, you know, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with wanting to be a missionary or wanting to reach the lost with the gospel or... You know, I really want to write great worship songs or serve the church or serve our community in a wide variety of ways. There's, there's nothing wrong with that, but perhaps our, our focus shouldn't necessarily just be on that, but rather we focus on what God has done for us, how, how He has worked in us in Christ, and how, how He's currently working in us through the power of His Holy Spirit. And that then when we focus on that, then... We're free to joyfully and humbly serve Him out of gratitude for what He's already done for us. So let's get back to our, our passage. Basically, David felt bad 
that he was living in this glorious mansion, this house of cedar, while God was merely dwelling in a tent. That, that was his kind of thinking behind and his, his motivation of why he wanted to build this temple. But, but God reminds him that it, that it doesn't really matter if he dwells in a tent because God is clearly the one who's working in this whole situation. You know, the, the fact that there was peace in the land, that wasn't because of David, that was because of God. The fact that he had this amazing rise to power out of nowhere, out of you know, being a shepherd, was so remarkable and so miraculous that God's presence in the nation of Israel couldn't be denied. Ir- irrespective of whether he dwelt in a tent or a temple, it was just obvious that God's presence was with Israel. And so, so look down from verse 8 onwards and see if you can pick who's the, uh, the real source of power behind everything that's happened. Who's, who's the one who's sovereign over this whole situation? So from verse 8. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people, people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the, na- the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. So have we figured out who's in control by reading through that section of the passage here? Who's the hero of the story? It's, it's just so clear. I mean, it would have been clear to David as well from how he all of a sudden ended up as king of Israel after just being a shepherd. You know, God is the one who is sovereign here. He's the one that sets the plans. He's the one that gives the promises and he's the one that has the ability to fulfill them. So, so David wasn't completely wrong in his desire to build a temple, but, but God had bigger and better plans, which we'll see as we continue through the passage. It, it's so much better than what David could have envisaged. So here God's promises begin uh, from verse 12. This is where uh, yeah, the, the meat of the Davidic covenant starts. Verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That's, yeah, there's, there's so much there in that verse, especially when we know how that's fulfilled. That's huge. It's not just a promise to David individually. Just like the, the, the promises to Abraham and Moses, they weren't just promises to Abraham and Moses. They were, they were generational promises that had uh, implications for their descendants. But, but here it's not just uh, generational consequences, it's eternal consequences. Your throne will be established forever. Which is pretty amazing because the, the position of king, of, of all the jobs, secure jobs that you could pick in those days, I'd say king wasn't necessarily one of them. In fact, in any time in history, the, the position of king hasn't exactly been uh, steady. The, the kings have always been paranoid about opposing powers, both w- within their own nation, you know, rival heirs to the throne, and then other nations coming and attacking their kingdoms. I mean, even, even 
within David's rise to power, we have those exact same problems. There's uh, enemies on the outside of other nations, but there's also um, Saul has still, the, the previous king Saul has still got descendants. So there could be people that think that his descendants are the, the rightful heir to the throne. So it would have been a, a terrifying time to be, to be king of Israel in that day. And yet God says, no, I'll, I'll establish uh, a throne forever that will come from your line. So God deals with, with two threats to his kingdom. One, one is the, uh, the rival heir. So because God has promised that the line will go forever, uh, if, if you continue on and read the next couple of chapters, you'll see David actually invites Saul's grandson to come and sit at his table, um, sort of as a sign that he's, he's not after him, he's not out to get him because he trusts the promises of God, that he knows that his own line will establish a kingdom forever. But the second obvious threat to David's kingdom is sin. Because why was, why was he king in the first place? Well, because of the sin of Saul. Saul sinned and it led to a great downfall. And then along comes David. And is he at risk of having the same problem, the same thing happening to him? But uh, God promises in verse, look down in verse 14 and 15, God promises unconditional love to the line of David. So verse 14, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. So that doesn't mean that there won't be consequences of sin. Definitely doesn't mean they won't sin. Like when we continue reading of the life of David and then the life of Solomon, we know that there is definitely a problem of sin still. But when they sin, God's favour isn't removed. It wasn't this conditional covenant. They're forgiven and they're restored. And when you continue reading the history of Israel, uh, as a general rule, things go well when they have good kings and things go bad when they have bad kings. But nonetheless, God has promised that this won't lead to the downfall of David's line. It'll still continue on. Uh, so let's just finish off our passage so we can see the, the fullness of, of God's promise to David and then we'll uh, break apart sort of what those promises actually mean for us. So from verse 16, it says, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision Nathan spoke to David. So verse 16 really summarises... Um, what, what the two main promises are. So God has promised an everlasting temple and, ever, and an everlasting kingdom, which he already said earlier in verse 13 as well. It says, He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So the, the two main points that I want to um, talk about is, is God's, God's king and God's temple. Because this prophecy is huge within the Old Testament. Like in, in and of itself, it's groundbreaking for what it means for the future of, of national Israel. Their, their safety, their, their legacy, their, their covenant with God, their tabernacle and temple system, and all these things that, uh, you know, it was a precarious time. All of this could have been wiped out and wiped away, and yet God has promised a, a stable and steady future for them. 
you know, great nations and empires just rose and fell so quickly. So to have this promise of stability would have been remarkable. But it actually means a whole lot more, something so much better in light of the New Testament where we see how God truly fulfilled it. As in interpreting uh, prophecies can be, uh, and biblical prophecies can be quite difficult, uh, a difficult task sometimes. But I think it's so much easier to interpret when we have the fulfillment within Scripture. We see the New Testament and the New Testament writers tell us exactly how it's been fulfilled. But with a lot of prophecies, they can be two-tiered. There can be a, a, an immediate short-term fulfillment and yet when the New Testament and Jesus comes along, there's, a, there's a, an even greater and, and more real meaning to the prophecy of how Jesus fulfills it. So in one sense, God is making promises about David's direct descendants. You know, his son Solomon, we know later on, does go and build the temple. So he's, he's fulfilled that prophecy in a sense, and yet there's a greater temple to come. And we know that verse 14 uh, applies to him and to David. Uh, that's where uh, when they sin, God will still love them and dis- discipline them and restore them without removing their kingdom. But in a much greater way, Jesus is the fulfillment of God's plan to build an everlasting kingdom and to fulfill the temple system. And we know that Jesus is the fulfillment of this passage, uh, not just because of the, the way that the New Testament refers to Jesus as bringing an everlasting kingdom, or that he is the temple of God, and, and we'll get to, get to that in a moment. Uh, but we know that this passage is about Jesus because the New Testament authors go out of their way to mention Jesus' lineage from David. That They use it as evidence of him fitting the criteria of being the Messiah. Like, have you ever thought about that, of why they would refer to him as a son of David? And so, so that's the, the primary purpose of, say, Matthew's Gospel is to write a bio- biography of Jesus that demonstrates that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, that he is the King of Israel. And so when you open up the, the, the Gospel of Matthew, the very, fir- the very first chapter is, or is about his genealogy, but the very first verse says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. It's already hinting at his identity, the the authentic signs that he is the Messiah. And likewise, Paul starts the book of Romans saying he was called to be an apostle of the gospel of God, uh, which God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David. They include these details because they know that Jesus is the fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7. So we know that Jesus is both the king of an everlasting kingdom and the fulfillment of the temple system. So they're, they're the two points that I want to look at. And so first, let, let's look at Jesus' kingship. And he makes this claim that he is a king. In, in Matthew 19, 28, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So so this means that Jesus is the fulfillment, not not just a small part of it, not just 
uh, one in, in a long succession of, of rulers, but he is the ultimate fulfillment of this passage. There's not a continuation of rulers for national Israel because God's plan for the kingdom through David's line is fulfilled in Jesus with no succession plan. Jesus sits on the throne forever. And this is brilliant because ultimately it's all about restoration. And in fact, this whole series is about restoration. Back in Genesis 1 and 2, before the fall, humanity lived under God's rule. They obeyed Him, they worshipped Him, their, their purpose for living, working, family relationships, everything was within the kingdom of God, living under His reign as King. And, and we know what happened, it didn't take long, and, you know, second part in our series, or Genesis 3, the fall happens. God's reign was rejected, His authority was ignored, the people disobeyed and they were kicked out of His kingdom. But Jesus has come to restore that, to bring us back into His kingdom. And this is one of my, my favourite verses from the New Testament, Colossians 1, 13 and 14. It says, he, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We can now be a part of His eternal kingdom. And we're called to, to live in obedience to Him as a community of people where, where God's character is, is reflected in our actions where our, our, and our relationships with one another. And so now Jesus sits on the throne. So now there's, there's no more sin in the world, right? You know, no more problems in the church ever. Right? Not quite, or, or not yet. Because the problem of human sin still exists. And I want to quickly look at a couple of passages where people miss the point of God's kingship. And I think we go wrong in the exact same way. So that, um, the, the first thing is that, that we tend to look in all the wrong places for a king. And, and Israel actually did this even by asking for a king in the first place. Uh, so so this, is a, this is a pretty weird point, but... Uh, but did you know that even kings like David and, and Solomon, even though that they were greatly used by God, but the reason why they were actually even in a position of being king in the first place was because of Israel's sin. Like it was, it was never actually God's original design for there to be a monarchy with other kings on the throne. This was never part of God's design for Israel. Yeah, check out First uh, Samuel 8, just a, a few pages back. First Samuel 8. Uh, verse 5 onward says uh, that the elders of Israel, that they, they come to Samuel and they say, appoint for us a king to judge, judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord and the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. This was actually even sinful for them to ask to have a king because they were rejecting God. And then the rest of that chapter is God and Samuel uh, warning Israel that if they appoint a king, they'll rule over them harshly, they'll be taken to war, they'll be taxed heavily, they'll be enslaved. But the people don't care. They, they don't want God, and so they look to another person to try and find a, a hero to be, bring success to their nation. And, and then the rest of the Old Testament is pretty much their warnings coming true, basically they get a bunch of kings that they really shouldn't have ruling over them harshly. 
but we're actually guilty of behaving in the same way. As ridiculous as it seems when, when we look at the people of Israel and we see just how, how foolish they act, how sinful they act, we're, we're not actually that different in rejecting God as king. When we reflect on, on it, that there, there are areas of our life where we don't want God to be king or we don't want to give up control and give it over to him. And we look to, to hope in other things, just like national Israel. They wanted to be just like all the other nations. They didn't want God ruling it. We can be guilty of, of wanting other political leaders to maybe not so much rule over us, maybe rule over every, everyone else, the people that we don't like. You know, or, or we put our hope in that. If, if only we get the right people in power, right, th- then society will be fixed and everything will be safe and wonderful. You know, it turns out it all went wrong when humanity rejected the king back in Genesis 3. And if, if your hope is, is found in, in voting for the right party to bring about a, this nice Christian utopia, like, prepare to be severely disappointed in that. Because the solution to the fall and our broken society is God re-establishing His reign. And He doesn't reign like the earthly rulers. He is the exact opposite of the warnings that they gave to, to Israel when they asked for a king. He doesn't accumulate servants, but instead he came to serve. And he doesn't conquer with military might, but instead he's the prince of peace that lays down his life for his people. He takes our sin upon himself on the cross to die for us, to take our punishment so that we can be forgiven. And not just forgiven, not just servants of his kingdom, but so that we can be adopted into his family as sons and daughters of the king. He's, he's so not like us. He just does things so differently than the way earthly kings and rulers do. Which is why it's so crazy that we actually do put our hope in other things and other people. And then we get surprised when we're disappointed with them. But we don't actually just look to other politicians or other people to, to be our king probably the, the most common thing would be we want to be on the throne. So our sin is a little bit different than Israel who wanted you know, military might and someone else to fight for them. Uh, in, more often than not, we just want to be left alone to do our own thing, be in charge of our own lives. Uh, and I think probably one of the, the main ways in which we do this is by compartmentalising uh, our lives into the stuff we do for God and then everything else. You know, there's, there's, I, and I, I know I'm, I'm guilty of doing this, there's the church stuff and then there's the non-church stuff where it's just um, a, amoral. It's, it's neither good nor bad, it's just the rest of my life. But God doesn't want me to just put a set amount of time and effort into things for Him and everything else is just neutral. You know, the rest is just my own free time. It, it doesn't work like that when we recognize that Jesus is the king and we owe him everything, our whole lives, because they're not our lives, they belong to him. And that doesn't mean that you never leave the doors of the church or that every waking minute is spent only reading the word and praying. But it means that as we go about our day-to-day lives, when we have our hobbies, when we catch up with friends, the relationships that we have, all of it is for God. So have a, have a think about what you do with your free time or the relationships that you have with people outside the church. How can you let those things reflect that God is on the throne? 
that he reigns in your life and that you can use those things to serve him. Perhaps another way that we, we don't recognize God as king is our unwillingness to give up control when we make plans for the future. You'd know the, the famous phrase from the, the poet uh, William Ernest Henley said, I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul. And that's how we like to live, being the master of our own fate, in control of exactly how our lives will turn out. And there's nothing wrong with planning things out, but how do you respond when things don't go the way that you have planned them out? Have the last couple of years panned out exactly how you planned? It kind of pulled the rug out from under us. So instead, if we, if we recognize that God is on the throne, not us, when things don't pan out like we planned, we don't complain, we don't throw a hissy fit, we, we don't need to despair. We recognize that the true king hasn't deserted his throne, and, our pl- and his plans for our lives will still be accomplished. So Israel rejected God as king in, in the same way that we often do. But in this passage, God isn't offering a new and improved plan, something different. Instead, he's bringing us back to his original intention with God as king. And, and he does that when these prophecies are fulfilled in Jesus, when Jesus arrives as the king, establishing an eternal kingdom. But then we see once Jesus arrived, they actually a lot of people did recognize him as king, but they still didn't get it. They still missed it. And I, w- I won't go through that whole passage, but John chapter 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000, and their immediate response is to go and basically kidnap him and take him to make him king. For some reason, Jesus ran off because he knew that they missed the point. They, they wanted a king because he fed them, because they, he performed miracles, and, and because in the first century they were just waiting for the Messiah to come and kick out the pesky Romans. And so they wanted a king on their own terms. They, they didn't want Jesus for who he is. They wanted him for their own purposes. And... Once again, I think we can, we can do the exact same thing with Jesus. Even if we recognize that he is king and we recognize that we want to submit our lives to God, we'd still rather sit on the throne ourselves and use God as our, our, our magic genie to perform our bidding. And this can be seen, say, in our morals, where we expect God to uh, be merciful to us for our little sins while judging everyone else's really, really big sins. Or it can be seen in, in our prayer life where, we, where God is only summoned when we need something from Him. You know, who, who's really on the throne when our prayer life consists of only requests to God? You know, what, what percentage of, of my prayer life is just spent asking for things that I want? And then how, how much time do I spend thanking God when He actually does answer them? That's been a, a, a challenge for me of just how how easy it is to not pray about things and, and until I need something and then I go to God in prayer. And it's because I'm wanting to sit on the throne instead of God. 
irrespective of, of how we respond, you know, whether we respond just like the people of Israel did, God's rule doesn't change. Like whether you believe in Jesus or not, He is still the King. He's still on the throne and we're still accountable to Him. And, and that would be a, a, a terrifying thing, but remember there were two uh, main promises in this passage. So the first is that, that Christ or Jesus, when He fulfills this, will sit upon an everlasting throne. But the second thing is that He will build a temple and fulfill the tabernacle and temple system. Now, so that's clearly a prophecy that was fulfilled in one sense, the very next generation. Solomon goes and builds the temple. But when we read the New Testament, we, we can see that it's actually being fulfilled in a far greater way. So many verses that we could go through of temple language in the New Testament, but but Jesus Himself makes this claim. Say in the passage uh, is in in John two, where where Jesus cleanses the temple, and and by which I mean he he overturned tables, he he tipped money on the ground, he drove the animals out of there, which would have been an amazing sight to behold. Um, we see that He is actually the fulfillment, the true temple of God. And so in John 2, from verse 18, he says, So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The, the Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. But it was such a remarkable statement that he, even his opponents remembered that bold claim years later when he was actually hanging on the cross. In, in Matthew 27, it says, And those who passed by, this is when he's hanging on the cross, it says, those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So the irony is pretty amazing at, at their, their mockery right there that, at the very moment that he's on the cross and they're bringing up that statement, that's when he's actually fulfilling that very statement that that temple is being destroyed but it will be raised up three days later. They're seeing the fulfillment right in front of them. He's dying to provide access to the presence of God to fulfill the temple system. The veil is being torn in two and he's the conquering king, defeating death, but they missed it. And so it's really important that we see what's happening here with the, the temple imagery, that, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple system. In 2 Samuel uh, 7.13, when God says, He shall build a house for my name and I'll establish the throne of his kingdom forever, he's talking about Jesus. Not, not just the king, but the temple itself. Uh, and we see this, this tabernacle and temple system again used all throughout the New Testament. Right at the start of John's Gospel, yeah, the, the fa famous verse from, from John's prologue says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that Greek word there, dwelt, is, is exactly the same in the Greek Old Testament for tabernacle. It literally says, He came down here and tabernacled among us. God's presence was with us. The dwelling place of God, God Himself. 
They were in the presence of God when they walked with Jesus. And what was lost at Eden is being restored through Christ and ultimately restored in Revelation when we get to see him face to face. There are other ways in which Jesus is said to fulfill the tabernacle or temple system. His incarnation, which I just mentioned, when he tabernacled among us. Uh, Hebrews talks about the sacrificial system being fulfilled in Christ. We see in the gospel accounts when Jesus died, the veil being torn in two, so that's access into the presence of God, the holy of holies. There's no longer any barrier between us and God. And finally, in the epistles, those of us within the church actually get referred to as the temple of the Holy Spirit as God dwells in us. So so knowing that Jesus is the fulfillment of this temple system should shape how we think about the presence of God. I remember a a few years ago, I went to Jerusalem and I was at the the, the Western Wall, uh, Western Wall of the temple, and seeing people going up and, and offering prayers, but they would get as close as they could to the Western Wall because they couldn't get up to the top. They would press their nose right up against the Western Wall to get as close to the presence of God as they could. Uh, I remember people in our, in our tour group and, and a few other people just saying, you know, oh, isn't it so beautiful, their, their devotion to get to the presence of God as, as close as they could? But for, for me, it wasn't actually beautiful. It, it was actually heartbreaking that, that God's presence isn't found in Jerusalem. It isn't found in the stone wall and getting your nose as close to the stone wall as possible. It's, it's found in Christ. It's found in the church because Jesus was the fulfillment of that temple system. And now God's presence is in the church as the Holy Spirit dwells in every believer. So we're not waiting for some future fulfillment or the rebuilding of the temple or a political upheaval on the Dome of the Rock. Because I think that can take away the focus off of Christ. We've already seen the fulfillment. We've seen why the whole, the whole reason for the temple in the Old Covenant was to point towards Jesus coming. God's presence is made available to us. So if you want to draw near to God, you don't need to go to a specific location. Even coming in here today, as good as it is that you've come, but you just simply need to go to God through the temple Jesus. Go to God while trusting that He died for you, that He died for your sins, trusting that He rose again from the dead, and you can access the presence of God. And this truth should shape how we understand the presence of God for, for us as Christians. I think we can, we can often still actually be guilty of thinking that God's presence is found in a specific location or through a specific experience. Now, I, I know I've been tempted in years gone by to... Uh, that, or, or tempted to believe that I was somehow missing out on something, that God was holding back from me part of his presence and so I just need to go to you know a a charismatic service and have some kind of experience of God and then I would get to receive the fullness of the presence of God you know in a deeper way than I currently am or maybe it's it's simply the location we can see coming into church is the way in which we get to experience the presence of God you know as if the the New Testament church is just the the new or the church is the New Testament equivalent of the temple 
and while, while it's true that we are actually right now in God's presence and we can experience God as we come and worship Him and hear from His Word, when we walk out that door today, we're not leaving the presence of God. God still remains with us. He doesn't leave us. And so if you've believed in Christ and you've come under His rule as King, you have entered His presence. God is with you every single day, everywhere you go, irrespective of your experiences and irrespective of your feelings. I think that, that, that's a tough one. Do we, do we measure the presence of God based upon how, how you feel? Right? What, what about when you sin? Or what about when you're struggling to be disciplined? What if you haven't read your Bible in a while? Has, has God, is He more distant now? Has He left you? You know, what, what if you don't feel forgiven? Or what if you don't feel His presence? It doesn't mean that He's left you. It, it means that we can look to the promises of Scripture and we can look to the prophecies fulfilled and then we look to Christ. He is our access to the presence of God permanent we've entered an everlasting kingdom that goes on forever and cannot be taken away earthly kingdoms will come and go but jesus will reign forever and that's why it's so important that you come to know him that you enter god's presence but have you done that though have you entered god's presence and if you haven't all you need to do is believe in him all you need to do is trust that Jesus came to die for your sins, trust that he rose again from the dead. Recognize that you can't save yourself and acknowledge that you need his help and he will save you. You'll enter his presence, you'll enter his temple and you'll enter an everlasting kingdom and get eternal life with him. Let's, let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you fulfill your promises in such an amazing way. We thank you for the great things that you did in Israel through David and his line and we thank you that you have fulfilled them so magnificently in Christ. We thank you that we get to experience the joys of coming into your presence and salvation and adoption into your family and into your kingdom. We pray, Lord, that we would not lose sight of, of the greatness of these truths and that it would help us to Live under your rule every day as we go out into the world. Lord, help us to reflect your kingdom and your character. In Jesus' name, amen.